I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Joseph, I am worried about Jordan Spieth. Should I be as worried about Jordan Spieth as as I am right now? What is your cause for concern? <laughs> Look, you know, I, I don't ask for much. I, I'm a big Spieth fan. But when he has an opportunity to win a tournament against Adam Shank and Taylor Moore, and he bogeys two of the last three holes, and he spends the entire round not being able to hit a fairway, I just I start to get a little frustrated. I start to feel like, you know, all the Spieth haters out there, including some in our own company, that they're that they're starting to get the upper hand in the argument. And and I just want a little more from Jordan. Can can you give me some hope? Is he actually turning around this season or or is it just going to be a big tease like it has been for the past four or five years? Did you want him to not get into contention? Would that have been better? I mean, I, I'm obviously <laughs> being go. a little a little unfair by making that comment, but you know, I think Jordan Spieth had obviously a pretty fascinating career. I don't know where the hype is right now compared to where it was last year at this time, but he showed some really strong flashes right about this time last year was underwhelming, especially at Augusta. But this is kind of what Jordan's game has looked like now for a little over a year. I think you should be optimistic as a Jordan Spieth supporter. I mean, he's gained strokes on his approach in the last five tournaments in a row. Like the putter has shown some flashes, but it's still a little scary inside, you know, close range. But if you're somebody who's optimistic about Jordan Spieth, he's giving you plenty of reasons to be optimistic, especially at a setup like Augusta, I think like LACC. There are some reasons to be optimistic, but he's not a top five player in the world at the moment. Okay, that's what I needed to hear. That's all I needed to hear. Thank you for uh, for giving me some reassurance. Now, Taylor Moore did did win the Valspar. I I really don't know a thing about Taylor Moore. Do Do you know a thing about Taylor Moore? <laughs> he hasn't. He didn't give us a ton to hold on to. But um, I don't know a ton about Taylor Moore's game. I from a quick look up. I mean, he hits the ball long, which is always. A that's something you can hold on to as a reliable skill. The ball striking has been pretty good this calendar year. So uh, it's impressive that he finished tied for 11th at Torrey Pines. He's actually had like a pretty good calendar year. So he's somebody to pay attention to, but you never really know. The driver has been really good and that's a, a reliable skill. So sometimes wins come from players you don't always expect. And yesterday was a great example. It, it sounds like a lot of other PGA tour pros is <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me right now. Kind of uh no offense to Taylor Moore. I don't know a thing about him. He might be a tremendously interesting guy, but this seems to me like an assembly line situation. Now, I, I may be proven wrong. He may go on to have a really hot season, like a like a Sam Burns type season or something like that, but I, I just don't know. And and I was a little frustrated. You know, I, I wanted to see Spieth pull it out, and I guess I'm a fanboy, so that's uh that that that's all this really is. In any case, that is Joseph Lamagna. I am Garrett Morrison, and you're listening to the Friday Podcast. 
And today we're going to talk about the demise of the WGC Dell Technologies match play, the final edition of which will be played this week on the PGA Tour. After that, I'm going to talk to Dean Snell about the technological side of rolling back the golf ball. Dean is the founder and CEO of the ball manufacturer Snell Golf, as well as an engineer who worked for Titleist and TaylorMade. He's also on the record as being anti-rollback. And while I do not want to turn this interview with Dean into a crossfire-style debate, I do think it'll be informative to hear from an extremely well-informed voice on the equipment industry side of this issue. You know, he he's he's a reasonable guy. He's a very smart guy, but he sees these things very, very differently than I do. Listeners are very familiar with my opinion on the rollback issue. Andy's opinion, pretty much anybody who works at the Fried Egg's opinion. And so I thought I would seek out a different point of view um, on, on this subject. At the end of the episode, Joseph and I will each give our storylines to track this week in golf. But first, Joseph, let's talk about the match play. You are our Austin correspondent. Do you ever play at the Butler Pitch and Putt? I do. I love the Butler Pitch and Putt. It's a great place, isn't it? I think it's a great model for what some alternative forms of golf can look like, and it's been very successful. It's it's just in the middle of the city, for people who aren't familiar with this with this place. It's in the middle of the city, and uh, I'm not exactly sure how many holes there are. Maybe nine? And, it, and it's it's short par threes with really interesting greens, like greens that were designed by Dan Proctor. If people are familiar with Dan Proctor, he worked for Corin Crenshaw has, has, and has done a, a set of a small set of really great courses with Dave Axland, including Wild Horse, Wild Horse Golf Club in, in Nebraska, which we've raved about. And so there are these fascinating greens and, you know, it's just a, it's just a little par three course in the middle of the city. Pretty small footprint, right? Yeah, it's turf tee boxes you show up you throw your you pay you put your golf ball into a holder that puts you in the queue when you're up you go it's nine holes there's beer carts you sometimes have to watch out for some stray golf balls because it doesn't always attract the best player but that's just part of the experience and you don't really need more than like a gap wedge or a pitching wedge, but I'm hopeful that post rollback, maybe you'll need a nine iron. <laughs> that's, that's what, that's what rollback is really about. Protecting the Butler pitch and putt. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> Making people club up and play those greens uh, properly as they were designed. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, main topic in Austin this week, obviously is the match play, which is going away after this year. Very sad, but somewhat predictable. And we'll get to some of the factors that, caused its demise in a minute. But first, I want to talk a little bit about Austin Country Club. This is, I think, one of the best courses on the PGA Tour. And and it's one of the reasons that I'm pretty sad about the fact that we're not going to see the match play again, not just because match play is a great format that I really enjoy, but also because Austin Country Club is a cool course to see annually. And we're not going to anymore. So just as a send off, what do you think makes ACC a special venue for, for tournament golf? Yeah, I could go deep here. I love Austin Country Club. Personally, think it's one of the best courses on the PGA Tour. I've always kind of objected to when people say it's a great match play course, but kind of imply that it wouldn't be a great stroke play course. I think it'd be a great stroke play tournament that you could have here too. So I love it. It penalizes wide misses heavily. Um, There's a lot of variety in the holes. I think the par fives are excellent. 
there's <laughs> one course that I'm kind of on the record of appreciating is TPC San Antonio. And I would describe Austin Country Club as a much better version of that golf course. Really big premium for hitting accurate drives. A lot of different players can succeed there. And like Corey Connors finished third at Del Match Play last year. He's a winner at TPC San Antonio. I think that's the best comparison, but Del Match Play, Austin Country Club is just a better version of that. Interesting. Uh, so you wouldn't compare it necessarily to like the other Pete Dye courses on tour as much? Well, I mean, like PGA West, less of a, much less of a penalty to being errant off the tee. And then if you were to think about some other courses like Sawgrass or Harbortown, those you have to be accurate, but it's doing it in a little bit of a different way with like really small greens and tight tree-lined corridors where you're not even always hitting driver. At at Austin Country Club, it's a little more open feeling, but you can get into some trouble off the tees, especially with how firm it is out there. So it it penalizes wide misses in a similar way to, to a course like Sawgrass, in terms of magnitude, it just does it in a different way. And it's a, it's a way that I think is more appealing. And, and so what is that different way? If you were to put a finer point on that, I think we all know what the way that TPC Sawgrass penalizes wide misses is. There's water, right? Or there's, there's thick trees or, or something really straightforwardly penal. Austin Country Club's like a little bit wider, right? And, and you say it does this same thing in a different way. So, so what is that? There are some penalties kind of on the, the perimeters. So a great example would be the drivable par four, the fifth hole. There's out of bounds down the entire left side. So if you're going to go for that green, you can't just spray it. You could go out of bounds. Like that. that's an example. Hole six, great par five. If you just get a little bit off there, you can't get home in two. It's really hard to get home in two even if you hit a good drive. But uh, some of the holes kind of have pretty steep runoff almost off of the fairways hole 10 would be another example uh short par four where if you just blow it out right you can kind of get down a a big down slope so it does it in a variety of ways but there's just penalties on some of the perimeters even hole nine which i think people will be familiar with big down slope in the fairway it's a par four with water to the left and this is a controversial hole. I remember Spieth hit it in the water last year and was really upset that his ball went in the water. But if you favor the right side of that fairway, then it shouldn't go into the water. So it just it just kind of requires precision in an interesting way that kind of varies hole to hole. But overall, you got to hit it online there or you're either going to run into some trees and some, some dry spots. Another example would be like hole eight. Um, also off the tee on the right on hole nine, you can get into some trees. But there's there's water out there. I mean, it just does it a variety of ways. I think it's an excellent example of having a diverse set of holes. You mentioned hole nine and number eight. Is there another hole that's maybe not ballyhooed like the like some of the river holes are or, or some of the most photogenic holes are? Is there a hole out there that you think people should really pay attention to as being representative of the virtues of, of this course? Yeah, there's a lot of good ones. I mean, I, I think hole five is a great drivable four. I really like, I actually think hole one's a pretty good opening hole. Yeah. And it it does, there's bunkers down the left side. It leaves a really touchy bunker shot if you find a bunker on the left. You might have a little wedge, big downslope over the back of the green that you cannot go long. Yes. So a lot of players like to favor the right side. But if you remember a lot of past memories at, at Del Match Play, you'll, you'll recall a lot of players in the trees kind of over by the concessions 
on hole one. Bryson's been there a number of times. <laughs> and part of the reason for that is the left side's a problem, but you can't just launch driver down the right side either. And I think that's such a refreshing departure from some other setups like Torrey Pines and like Bay Hill, where normally you just have to take one side out of play and you can kind of blast it down the other side. Austin Country Club doesn't afford you that opportunity. So that's something I really appreciate about it. So number one, you can, like I've seen players drive that green, right? Uh, depending on where the tee is, like really get it up near the green on that hole. It's it's generally downhill, I believe, but it kind of turns, has a sharp turn in it. And there are just like, I've seen drives all over the place on that hole, just a, a wide, wide range of outcomes. Yeah, it's a great opening hole. It's a bit demanding off the tee and you, you do kind of want to favor the right side there. But again, if you spray it out right, you run into a problem really quickly. Yes. I guess one other hole I'd throw out is 14. Uh, cool hole along the water. And there's a bunker down the left side that you don't really want to be in. And there's water down the left. So a lot of players kind of blast it out right. But you can't just blast it out right there and have an easy approach shot in. You often are dealing with wind, long approach shot into that green. Just bailing out way right becomes a problem too. So I think it's a good example of having some room to navigate out there, but a, a real reward for finding the fairway. And again, you have a lot of players like Billy Horschel, Kevin Kisner, Matt Kuchar, Corey Connors. Those are the type of players who have had success there. So that's not a coincidence. So farewell, Austin Country Club. You will be missed. This is a good PGA Tour venue. I can't imagine that it's going to be replaced by something in its schedule spot that's equally interesting. But I have heard word that the Houston Open might be moving back to the spring, and that's on a really interesting Tom Doak renovated golf course in Memorial Park. And so maybe that's the one silver lining here is that we'll we'll get to see a another really well-designed Texas course highlighted at this spot in the schedule but you know other than that i'm I'm not happy about seeing uh, acc go away so so kind of rip as, as far as the schedule is concerned i'm sure that the membership is not that unhappy about it though so um they'll, they'll kind of get their golf course back at this time of year um so let's talk about what happened to the match play you know there's been some reporting around this it's not totally clear honestly why this tournament went away but you can put together some narratives about why the tournament wasn't just more successful than than it was. And we'll talk about some of those. But just to get into some of the reporting around it, why, why this tournament ended up dying, Adam Shupak had a good report for Golf Week a, a little while back, and he heard a number of different things from a number of different people. Kevin Streelman, who's on the Player Advisory Council, told him, that it was a sponsorship issue, which means that it was a Dell issue. And that, you know, that that fits with some of the things that we've heard over the years about Dell's feelings about this tournament. It was just in 2019 that Dell suggested that the PGA Tour finished the tournament with 36 holes of stroke play. And some players in the room were like, well, what would you call it then? <laughs> um, so Dell was not happy, I don't think, with the match play format and with the fact that, you know, you could get to a Sunday and you would have two players that people weren't really interested in vying for the championship. You wouldn't have the big names there on the final day to attract people's attention, and Dell was looking for different ways to alleviate that issue. Obviously, there was a big format change a few years ago where you know the first rounds became round robin instead of immediate elimination. And so the format was an issue for the sponsor. The sponsor was not happy, and so Streelman saying that it was a sponsorship issue would seem to be accurate. 
Now, another issue was the host venue and the membership's attitude towards hosting a yearly PGA Tour event, which is very understandable. Uh, according to Adam Shupak, again, the tour clashed with Austin Country Club over the terms of a contract extension, and they kind of went back and forth about this, and ultimately, Panavidra apparently just went radio silent and stopped negotiating with Austin Country Club, even when ACC... Uh, made it clear that they were willing to come up with some kind of deal to keep the tournament coming back. It, it appeared that the PGA Tour at a certain point just wasn't interested. So now the tour has confirmed that there will be no match play event on the schedule next year. Joseph, why do you think it is that match play didn't survive on the PGA Tour in this era? And do you, do you think it's just an awkward fit overall for the modern PGA Tour? I think it is an awkward fit for the modern PGA Tour, but for to me, that's kind of an indictment of the golf ecosystem, the, the current state of the golf ecosystem, and why some reform would be nice, and maybe we've already started to move in that direction with some of the schedule changes that have been announced for next year, but there are a lot of logistical issues with Adele match play. Players don't know how long they're going to be there. Fans don't know exactly when they can show up and who they're going to see when they do show up. So if you plan that, you know, you want to show up for the Saturday or the Sunday, I mean, Sunday only has a couple golfers on the course anyway. I think another huge issue that they've had is that Sundays are sleepy because there's only four golfers on the course. And the point that I would make, which is not a, this is not my first time making this point on this podcast is that it's hard to understand what the stakes are. If you're playing for money, we get that. But if you're playing for FedEx cup, standings on like the runners up match on Sunday why should somebody care about how many points are being allocated to the winner of that match I think the PGA Tour's schedule change and this is something we'll talk about more on this pod I'm sure has improved that because now only the top 50 players in the FedEx Cup standings are getting into all of the designated events the following year so this runner up match and, and the final match might actually have a little bit more meaning that being said it's still only four golfers on the course. And from a broadcasting perspective and from a fan experience perspective, that that has an impact. It's not ideal. But I'd love to see a little bit of reform so that we can get a match play event on the schedule that is appetizing and is appealing for both sponsors and fans because, in my opinion, it's the most compelling format of golf. Now, there's another issue with match play and its fit on the PGA Tour that I've heard you mention before, and that's that has to do with the official World Golf Ranking and the way that all works with a match play event. Could you explain that? Sure. I mean, it's just a known thing with Dell match play that you might play a good couple of days and still get eliminated, right? Like you can be Scotty Scheffler, play two really good rounds of golf, just get beat by somebody who gets hot and then maybe push in your third match and you're going home and you're not, you're going to be penalized from like an official world golf rankings perspective but if that had been a stroke play event you might be tied for 15th after those three days so it's just it's a high variance format that especially if you're one of the best players in the world and if the course doesn't fit your game particularly well your expectations owgr wise are not high that week it's also worth calling out that the new methodology implemented in august of 2022 rewards large fields and this is a small field this is 64 players so you're, they're not even a, as large of a sum of, of total points being allocated to the event anyway from an OWGR perspective. And so this is one of the ways that 
I've been critical of some of the changes to the OWGR and, and will continue to voice that, that maybe it's not a good thing that the OWGR rigid methodology disincentivizes an event like match play from existing. Because I think the golf world would be better if OWGR facilitated match play on the calendar. I mean, hope, ideally more than once a year. Yeah. I mean, what we're seeing is a couple of different factors promoting format homogeneity. One factor is the broadcast. 72-hole stroke play is just the format that the telecast seems to like, the one that it's comfortable with, the one that it really wants every event in the end to be because it just kind of works for the networks. And then you have OWGR, which, especially in light of the recent changes to the formula, would strongly penalize essentially participating in a match play event because match play events have to be smaller fields. And the top players are going to have to deal with some of the randomness of match play, of the fact that you might just get beat by somebody who would probably not beat you over 72 holes of stroke play. And so these influences of these various institutions on the PGA Tour has just caused match play, which is the most traditional, most important historical format in golf, to be chased off of the PGA Tour, which is kind of remarkable. But it's a testament to the strength of those influences trying to get every PGA Tour event to be the same. And so how do you deal with this, Joseph, from an institutional or from a systemic perspective with the broadcast existing, with the OWGR existing as it does right now? How do you solve this problem? How do you encourage the PGA Tour to try new things or any tour to try new things other than 72 holes of stroke play? It's a good question. I, I don't know how deep you want me to go into one of my solutions, but I think <laughs> one, one of your solutions, and you wrote a newsletter about this this morning, which is excellent. People check out Finding the Edge newsletter. Joseph always writes great stuff in there, as well as for us in the Fried Egg newsletter. But you, you, you say right off the bat, get rid of the OWGR. So I'm happy to tee you up for that one if you want to go into it. Yeah, and I might be getting a little dramatic with phrasing it that way. Like you could just kind of reform the OWGR, but if... The OWGR, or let's just say major championships, allocated spots to tours based on their order of merit. Then tours could have whatever formats they want because they, the OWGR would basically be outsourcing that order of merit calculation to the tours instead of dictating it themselves, which they are the ones administering the ranking. So if, if Augusta said, hey, PJ Tour, you get 70 spots in our major this year, then the PJ Tour could have whatever kind of calendar it wanted. And it could send the top 70 players from the FedEx Cup standings, which would mean that you could have match play multiple times because you're responsible for the methodology. So that's one way you could solve it is getting away a little bit from letting OWGR dictate all the terms of, of qualification, maybe just outsourcing that to the tours, letting them run their own formats and, and allocating points how they see fit. So I think that's one one way you could get around it. Perhaps you could also tweak the format a little bit. I think one thing we haven't talked about that's interesting, match play starts on Wednesday. Wednesday is probably the best day to go out to Austin Country Club because every player is starting with a fresh slate, optimism's high, no one feels like they can't win at that point. By Thursday, since it's pool play, some players who have lost their first match, there's already a little bit of wind out of their sails. By Friday, some players are playing matches that don't matter at all. <laughs> yeah, they're they, just they've dead. already been eliminated. And then on Sunday, you have a really sleepy, only four golfers on the course. 
Ticket prices are really low every year for, for Dell Match Play on Sunday, despite it being the final day. I'm sure the broadcast doesn't do huge numbers. So if you think about it, Friday and Sunday are two of the sleepiest days of the event, which those should be days that a lot of people are tuned in. So I do think structurally, there's a little bit of an issue there. And, and with some tweaks to the format, I think you could get away from that a little bit. Yeah, that's really interesting because definitely by far the best days of the match play are Wednesday and Saturday. And on top of that, if it starts on Wednesday, think about a player like Justin Thomas who wanted to play the Valspar. If he plays Valspar and that finishes on Sunday, that's a tight turnaround to get to Austin and and tee things up on Wednesday morning. So it just, it maybe isn't presenting the best set of incentives for a player to go show up for that event. So then, you know, considering all of that, what is your argument for keeping match play on the PGA Tour? Let's consider the the alternate perspective here, right? The sponsor's view, the OWGR's view, whoever, right? The player's view that match play is a problematic format for them. What is the strong argument that we can make to them that match play should have a place on the PGA Tour? I think it's the best format in golf, full stop. And I think it's produced some of the best authentic drama as the tour comes up with the player impact program, right? Tries to incentivize drama, tries to beef up rivalries like Bryson and Brooks. Dell match play produced it just within its format without even trying to conjure drama, right? We had Sergio and Kuchar get into it. We had Kevin Na and Dustin Johnson kind of have a little bit of a skirmish. There have been these head to head duels that have been really cool at Dell match play. And that's just a byproduct of a cool format. So I think if you could make Sundays a little bit more compelling, and there are ways to do that, then we might actually be able to sell to sponsors, hey, this format could work and it produces some of the best golf we see all year. So I think, I think match play, we, it, it just produces drama that you don't have to conjure. I think we should have match play multiple times a year. And you actually can then at the end of a player's career say, well, what was his match play record? Jordan Spieth versus Justin Thomas. What were they in match play against one another? But now we're removing that context completely from the PGA Tour, which I think is a mistake. I mean, even think about a story like Stephen Ames and Tiger Woods. How fun of a story is that to reflect on yeah. when Tiger completely trounced him? We're it's become do- a way of understanding everything, Stephen Ames versus Tiger Woods. Anytime anybody sees a huge blowout or somebody you know, uh, 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 talking a little bit too much before a match and then, and then getting beaten or before a game and getting beaten – they got aimsed. Right. And I think, again, if you go out and you have a bad day as a PGA Tour player, it could just be a 75 in a stroke play event. And you can justify it however you want. But if you go out and match play and you lose, you're 0-1. There's a finality to that. And there's something refreshing about having a win-loss record that I think golf benefits from, mm-hmm. even though we only see it team events and Dell match play once a year, which now we're not going to see anymore. Well, that's kind of sad. But let's hope that some people are listening and see some potential in match play and understand that when it comes to the entertainment product, that match play holds enormous potential. Just think of that full swing episode, the first full swing episode, Frenemies, Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas. You know what would be really meaningful is if Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas went up against each other in match play and Jordan won or Justin won and, and we and we l- looked at that closely and understood how that shifted the dynamic of their relationship because otherwise I don't buy that they're frenemies. So let's just hope that somebody, somebody out there with money sees, uh, sees that there's that opportunity and, uh, and takes it up. 
So coming up after this break, I talk to Dean Snell about rollback from his perspective as a ball engineer and manufacturer. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom-fitted and custom-built equipment. Their extensively trained master fitters provide an in-depth, data-driven, tour-level fitting process and have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, as well as 60-plus brands. They also use industry-leading technology like TrackMan and Sam Putt Lab, and they build to the tightest tolerances in the industry. Club Champions fittings produce real results for every level of player, including an average of 22-yard increases off the tee and an average of 10-yard improvements in dispersion. One thing that you really get from Club Champion fittings that I don't think is talked about enough is some knowledge about your own game, how you spin the ball, how you launch the ball, what you are actually doing at impact, how far you hit each of your clubs. I think these are things that golfers are not very aware of simply because they don't often get on track man and look at the numbers with somebody who really knows what they're looking at and club champion fitters really know what they're looking at. So they're not only getting you new clubs that are going to work for you. They're also giving you some awareness about what your golf game actually is and what you need out of equipment in general. So I think they're really eye opening experiences. I would highly recommend them. Fried Egg listeners, this is the deal that Club Champion is offering to you. You can use the code FRIEDEGG to get 50% off the cost of your Club Champion fitting with the purchase of a club. That's code FRIEDEGG, one word. All right, back to the episode. So, Dean, when I go to SnellGolf.com right now, I see that all of your product is sold out. So what's going on? Yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting year, uh, two and a half years actually for us since COVID kind of kicked in. Um, golf golf took off, you know, it was booming and rounds were up, memberships up, people were playing, getting a little extra money from the government, and uh, you know we were selling we were selling some good golf balls. But uh, what happened in golf was there was a big uh, issue with the material. There was a big uh, supply chain issue with material shortage that's in pretty much every single golf ball that's in golf. So the big companies had a surplus where they were able to, you know, kind of use what they had in-house and try to get through it. Some of them actually canceled some models and used the material in their top-of-the-line models, you know, and us being on the smaller side to where we, we work off of purchase orders quite a bit. So there wasn't any available. So uh, we were kind of, we kind of got limited on our supply and that, that kept going right through 2022. So for us, what we, what we've done is we've spent the last, the last year and a half or so working to uh to try to create um a, a different supply chain and a, and a different way to you know to get golf balls and different levels of manufacturing and stuff and create prototypes based on feedback from our customers and we've done that work over the last year and a half so we're getting ready now to have a, a launch of new products and everything's kind of kind of new for us new supply chain how we how we work and uh and we shouldn't be in this situation again with the, with the point that we put in place. And we sold out of pretty much everything that we had in-house now with the plans for this new, uh, new launch, which we're planning for April 3rd. So April 3rd, we'll have 
um, some information coming out with all the new products and new new names and everything, and uh, and we should be ready to go. Okay, so that's coming up. That that's got to be exciting to to sort of uh, have been on the bench for a while, and and now uh, now now you're finally freed up again. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a hockey player, so I feel like I've been sitting in the penalty box for a while. So <laughs> it's time to time to get out there and either pull the shirt over someone's head and start throwing uppercuts or score a couple goals and time to score some goals, I think. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, I'm talking to you today about the model local rule news that came out last week. And just to give people some context, the USGA and RNA proposed a model local rule or MLR um, and tournaments can use this MLR to require players to play a reduced flight golf ball. Um, now, just to give people some details on what the current testing of golf balls is or, or the way that balls are tested to be deemed conforming, right now, balls are tested according to this standard. At a club head speed of 120 miles per hour, a dynamic club head loft of 10 degrees, as I understand it. I think it's a dynamic loft as opposed to the actual club loft, and a spin rate of 2520. RPM, a ball cannot travel more than 317 yards. Now, the test for the MLR ball will be club head speed 127 miles per hour, loft 11 degrees, spin 2220 RPM, and it still can't go more than 317 yards. So they've increased the club head speed, increased the loft, and decreased the spin, all of which would normally make the ball go farther. But the MLR ball needs to go the same distance, 317 yards under those testing parameters. So basically, the MLR ball will need to have less juice. Now, Dean, from an engineering perspective, you're, you're a brilliant engineer. You, you uh, had a role in uh, creating some really famous golf balls, including the uh, Titleist Professional, the Titleist Pro V1, uh, the tailor-made five-piece ball, I believe. So... Just from an engineering perspective, what do you think it will take to invent this new MLR ball? Well, there's a there's a couple of things that are going to have to happen when you when you start. The manufacturers are going to have to go have this testing completed and find out where the ball is. So, three seventy is the max limit with a, with a three yard tolerance, so it can go to three twenty. That's that's the max. Every golf ball that's submitted today that's played on tour. Um, we max out the speed and we also max out that distance to the current test that we have. So if they're going to add significant amount of club head speed and not add any distance, pretty much every ball is going to fall over that maximum distance limit and it will be illegal to that new standard. So each manufacturer is going to have to go back now and see where, where is it, how far further does it go and how much do they have to reduce it. And there's a couple of ways that you have to evaluate that. If it's a if it's a pretty significant distance gap, um, you might have to do it with a combination of the ball design, which is adding spin to the golf ball, maybe slowing down the ball a little bit with speed, but adding spin to it, which is which is a bigger effect, and uh, and aerodynamics. So you can make the dimples be a little bit deeper, uh, you know, and, and create more drag, which slows the ball down at those faster speeds, and you can also add spin. The problem is when you do that. When you're adding spin to the to the driver's shot, you're also adding spin to all the other shots in the bag. So the players are gonna, you know, you're, you're gonna make the players be shorter 
the long hitters are still going to be the longest. And then you got, then the players are going to have to really struggle with golf balls that have higher spin rates throughout the bag. So if you switch back and forth one tournament to another, using this ball or not using this ball, it's not just a driver issue. It's not just, okay, we just shorten the ball and the rest of the game is the same. The added, added spin to the ball is, is a big difference on how, how these players use the golf balls to perform today, especially when you add wind into the game. So it's not an easy one-step solution by saying, okay, we'll just drop the speed of the core and everything's fine. You know, it can really be a core um, uh, speed issue. It can be a spin issue and it can be an aerodynamic issue. If it's an aerodynamic issue, the cavities to make these golf balls have to be changed for every single every single ball and all the tooling has to be changed and that can be in a very expensive process to do. Right. So, uh, you know, if you were tackling this problem yourself and you were looking at the possibilities of increasing spin, uh, altering the aerodynamics or looking at the core of the ball and maybe putting some different stuff in there, I, I'm not exactly sure how that would work. What would you tackle? How would you go about trying to reduce the flight? Would you would you look at spin as the primary factor, or or would you look at kind of all three factors that I just mentioned there? Well, the the, the simple solution would be to try to slow the core down, so you try to slow the ball down. I don't believe that that's going to get the yardage that everybody's talking about or the increase that's going to happen. I don't believe you're going to be able to bring that twenty to twenty five yards shorter by slowing the core down. So. I don't think that would be the simple solution. Just change your core formulation, your rubber system, make the ball be slower, and then the rest of the ball would still have a similar spin, um, even though the ball speed was slower. So I don't think that's going to be a, a, a viable, low, lower-cost solution. So I think you're going to have to do it with a combination. The second way to, to do I would address if it's a small thing is if the aerodynamics can change, then you can keep your performance of your golf ball similar to the rest of the shots beside the, beside the driver, that would probably be okay. And if you have to add spin to the ball, you're really changing the aerodynamics and the spin rate of the ball from tee to green. And that's a bigger adjustment for the players uh, to, to have to deal with. So obviously the speed would be first. The aerodynamics is, is expensive to do but for some processes. Some processes have individual cavities where you have to make you know, hundreds and hundreds of them, and it's they make it dimple cavities. A very expensive process, you know. And then adding spin to the ball is easy to do with with the designs inside and the materials we can use. But it changes the whole dynamic of the golf ball from tee to green, not just the driver. Yes, and and players would be especially sensitive to spin when it comes to approaches and wedges, and so that that right. would seem to be a, a tough thing to get players, uh, top players, to to adjust to. Um, so. My understanding is that equipment manufacturers have done an experiment kind of like this before, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe years ago the governing bodies actually asked a few manufacturers to produce a reduced flight ball. Am I right about that? Or, and, and if so, tell me about that. No, you're correct. They, they did ask some to participate if you want to. I don't think many did, but um... – it was, a, it was sent out to the manufacturers to say, hey, if you'd like to produce it, what they wanted to do at that time was to create a tournament ball. So I think, and, and, and my memory is not as sharp as it used to be either, but I believe it was some tournament in Ohio. Used, somebody made some, I don't know who it was, it wasn't me, but they made some farm and they played a tournament in Ohio uh, using this one ball. 
that's that's a that was a completely different scenario to say that the, there would be a tournament golf ball for the PGA Tour. That's not asking manufacturers to make their own balls be 25 yards shorter with whatever performance. There's a there's a big issue for me on this. The the distance increases that are causing some of these problems on the tour and the elite players for distance to me is four factors and they're they equally um, equally contribute. The, the the golf ball speed has not increased like everybody says. They don't they're not made faster. They're not going further because of speed at all. The speed is actually the same as it has been forever. But we've been able to design the balls having spin rate lower. So when when the spin rate is lower, the players are now launching the ball higher high launch, low spin is adding distance. So that's one factor. The second factor is the drivers. The drivers, the sweet spots have gotten pretty big on them. Um, the, the drivers have gotten longer, and the players are actually able to swing, you know, swing the clubs a little bit more aggressive because they're, they're more forgiven. That's added distance. The third thing is the players. The players today are into fitness, and their bodies twist and turn. Like It hurts to watch them sometimes, but, but they, when I started in golf, 34 years ago, the tour average for ball speed was 160 miles an hour. And these players today hit them 180, 190 miles an hour. That's, that's just ball speed. So that's how fast they're hitting the ball, which hasn't increased in speed, but they've increased the ball velocity 20, 30, 40 miles per hour, which is, which is crazy. So that's the driver and the players. And then the third thing is the agronomy. When you go out on these courses, you see some of these courses in Phoenix and in Hawaii where some of the balls are still rolling. You know, they, they get 30, 40, 50 yards a roll. If you come with me and play at my course on Saturday, sometimes we can fix the pitch marks on the side of our drives as they're softer <laughs> and they're wet. So I studied this years ago at La Costa with the top 10 players in the world. I played one year to the next year. It's when they used to do the tour championship there, I believe. And it rained one year. So just the same course with the same players year over year, it was about a 22 or 23 yard difference in distance, driving distance that week when they were there because the course was softer. So my personal opinion is if this is truly a driver issue and you're worried about the balls going too far and obsolete in courses, you can do two things. Number one, if you really wanted to put something in as a restriction, the T height of the, of the T if you made it a half inch or three quarters of an inch, that's going to add the spin that we just talked about. So just by teeing the, just by having a maximum tee height of three quarters of an inch or a half an inch will take off 10 to 15 yards of distance because the players can't hit up on the ball and launch it at high launch, low spin. It's going to hit lower and have more spin, which will shorten the golf ball up. And then if you water the fairways and shape the fairways at 300 yards with a little bit of rough that one week they're at your course, you'll see that they won't roll as far. They'll take a little bit more, um, pay a little closer attention to the accuracy on the course design and layout, try to keep it in the fairway. Um, you know, we watch them play the U.S. Open every year, and any course they play, it's set up to try to be par. So you, you can set courses up that one week they come to you to try to make it par. And it's fun to watch them struggle, but it's not fun if you did that 40 weeks in a season and the players would get hurt. So... I think if you control the tee height, you water the fairways, you use a lawnmower to let it grow a little bit, and then cut it on Monday and let the rest of us play, you know, it's a lot easier, cheaper way to uh, to deal with if you believe that your course is being obsoleted by distance. You can't tell the players they can't hit it harder. You know, when, when, a, when a big hitter hits the ball far and a short hitter doesn't, you can't blame the player for that. So by shorting, 
shortening a golf ball 25 yards, you're moving back the long hit is 25 yards, but you're moving back the short hit is 25 yards. And I honestly believe that you're going to create a bigger winning percentage of the long hitters because hitting an eight iron in and hitting a five iron in with golf balls that have more spin on them with affected by the wind, that proximity to the pin is going to get bigger and you're going to see a big difference in, in scoring. And I don't think anybody wants to watch a guy hit a five iron 30 feet, putt down two putt, give a golf clap and move on. You know, they like to see some excitement in it and have players challenge a little bit. And, you know, if you really think about it, if you wanted to, um, if you wanted to say we don't want 16 under to win the golf tournament, these par fours that everybody reaches in two, no uh, par fives, everybody reaches in two that they play four rounds, take two of them and make them into par fours that week. You know, now their scores posted will be eight under to win, not 16 under. And they're still playing the same golf course without, without making any big expensive changes. I think that everybody agrees that distance gains have been a combination of factors. I think that's a common ground here that, you know, players have trained to hit the drivers and the balls that they've been given and that the swing, the golf swing has changed as a result. And so I, I think that there is broad agreement on that where there might be some disagreement is how we go about finding some kind of solution or even if we need a solution. There's a lot of disagreement about that. And I think listeners to this podcast know what my perspective on all this stuff is. I think I've stated that uh, pretty frequently that that I don't think that courses should continue uh, should should continue to need to change as they have for you know the past 150 years in golf, and that we have to start looking to some other possible ways to rein in the distance that uh, the golf ball is going. And and I greet the MLR rule with with a little bit of optimism. But what I'm really curious to to uh, you know ask you about and to get into detail about is what all of this looks like from you know an expert on the engineering and manufacturing side. And so we haven't really even talked about the manufacturing consequences of an MLR ball. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts on what it's going to look like or what it's going to take for the OEMs to manufacture this new ball alongside their existing lines. Well, it's a it's a valid point on the on the cost. You know, it, who who's going to pay for it? The tour players don't pay for golf balls, so if you have to spend millions of dollars on creating a new line, you know, that can have new tooling and new engineering to create this separate line of golf balls that you have to make, you know, buy the equipment, process, pay the people to make them, pack them, ship them to the tour, pay somebody to be on tour give them to the tour players for free. And you've got this big expense at the end of this time with this cost to make this ball that's being used on tour that the people aren't going to buy because it's 20, 25 yards shorter. So this, that's a big expense. You, what's going to happen with this proposal is the, the people that buy the golf balls are now going to see the price of theirs go up. So they, they say it doesn't affect the average consumer, but it really does. I mean, there's a, there's a cost to it. Unless the USJ or someone's going to say, hey, we'll give you $20 million each and you guys go create this ball and supply it to the tour. There's no more contracts for tour players to, to play products and endorse them and then sell them based on players using them because they're not using the ball that they're selling. It's 20 yards shorter. So why would somebody want to buy that? They don't. So there's a big financial impact to this thought process that that says I, I don't disagree that the players have hit in the golf ball and the yardages are getting, you know, 
crazy long. But when Mark McGuire stands up in in at home plate at Fenway Park or Aaron Judge with that short left field wall, they don't make him hit from the backstop. You know, but the but the Bucky Dents or the Ichiro's or the short hitters could still win the game with a single or a double off the wall. So if you're physically able to hit the ball further and you shorten it up 25 yards, you're still physically able to hit the ball further and you probably increased your chances to win and there's a cost to it and there's no money to it and someone's going to pay for it on the back end. So that's that's my thought process on just the proposal of saying it's a golf ball. Now, if you put a T-height max of three-quarters of an inch and you shorten the ball 15 yards without changing anything, so now any, nobody can hit. You're still going to move the, the long hitters back. You're still going to create this issue where the short hitters are going to be at a bigger disadvantage because a lot of courses have added length. But this is this is definitely a, an elite kind of player. So I this, I agree with that. But having the golf ball be the be the answer to hit a driver shorter is gonna is gonna create I think a bigger issue financially for the players and for the cost to make and for the manufacturers to, to get to the players and then pass on to the consumers somehow someone's going to pay for it. So Dean, I hear you saying that this ball is going to be 25 yards shorter. That's the number you've used a couple of times. The governing bodies have estimated that they think that the ball is going to be 15 yards shorter. Now, when you say 25 yards, is that you kind of looking at the new parameters and sort of estimating what you think the new distance will be. I, I'm I'm saying that you can't say it's going to be 15 yards because that's it. That is a launch condition at 11 degrees at 2200 spin. That's eight. That's one shot. It, it, you got 140 something tour players teeing up a driver. There's 140 different launch conditions there. So everybody doesn't hit it at 11 degrees and 2200, and they'll be 15 yards shorter. Some guys are higher spinning players. They'll be 25 yards shorter. Some guys are lower spinning players. They might be 10 yards shorter. The gap, it's not a, it's not a, a, just a, a, a measured number that you use on a robot test that calculates a distance using that 320 yard shot that they use is, is using your lifted, your aerodynamic properties with that speed and spin and launch. It's not even out on a driving range. It's not even on a golf course. It's a calculated number based on launch conditions that are programmed into it with your ball performance characteristics. So there's no definitive one distance answer to this. Some guys might be 10, some guys might be 20, 25. It, it It could be a big difference. It could be a small difference, but it's not a single point difference. That's a one launch condition. Watch on tour when they do the track man system and they show the numbers behind it. And yesterday when I was watching it, one of the guys hit it 182 miles an hour. And he was 14 degree launch and 2,600 spin. And the other guy was 170 and he was 13 degree launch with 2,100 spin. Well, the, the guy that was slower in speed went longer because his launch angle and spin were more optimum. So that's what happens when you, when you have different players hit different shots. You can't predict what the distance is going to be. Only that one point that they defined is going to tell you what they test at, but it's not going to tell you what the tour is going to do. Some people in and around the equipment industry have been saying that manufacturers might simply refuse to make the MLR ball if this rule, in fact, goes into effect. Do you think that's actually a possibility? 
I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a question that I would that they that they would have to probably answer. But uh, I mean, I, the, I my question would be if I was one of the big manufacturers, is who's going to pay for it? You know, I mean, it's a it's a big cost. It's a it's a big expense to support these places that people don't buy balls, but the people that do buy them actually pay. You know, they use the money to pay this 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 stuff to be done. But now, if you put all this cost into it, and no one's going to buy them. Then, then you're, you're you're basically back to you're basically back to selling golf balls with no endorsements or support or, or tour support whatsoever. There's no one's buying them, so that they would have to answer that question. I mean, I don't, I I, I don't know. You you might see some people bail out of it, you know, if, if because they're not going to sell them. So what what would be the value of a of a top manufacturer to supply this ball that they can't sell to anybody? Mm-hmm. What's the value to them? I don't know, but who's going to pay for it? Somebody. You know, I know it's not going to come out of their bottom line profits. That's for sure. Now, you know, addressing the menu, uh, the sorry, the marketing piece of this, which you've mentioned a couple of times, that you know, in in an MLR era, marketing a tour ball would be very different. Now, from my perspective as a consumer, and I admit that I may just be weird, I don't look at Justin Thomas and say I need to play the same ball that he does. I look at Justin Thomas and say, he's playing a Titleist ball. Titleist must be an awfully good golf ball. And then moreover, if I'm, you know, say a savvier consumer, I look at a ball like the one that you make, Dean, and say, well, maybe I'm not sure if you have a tour staff. Do you have a tour staff? We don't. Direct to consumer model, uh, basically an excellent product. I've played it. I've played snowballs. They're, they're just as good as anything else. I, as a savvy consumer, will look at that and say, you know, this Dean Snell guy knows how to make a golf ball. I bet these are pretty good. Even if nobody on tour is playing it, I'm going to play this golf ball because I think this is going to be good for my game. And you know what? It's cheaper (laughs) than the other options. It's cheaper than me going and buying a sleeve at the pro shop. So in, in that sense, do you think that marketing will be a lot more difficult for, for tour ball makers or will it just be? Uh, will it just be different? Will it just? Uh, will they have to find new ways to to market this new product? Well, if you break down what you said there into two different areas, the first part of your question, the first part of your statement was that um, you, you believe that some people think like Justin Thomas plays a Titleist ball, so I'm playing a Titleist ball because it's good. Well, Justin Thomas plays a Pro V1 ball, and I buy the Pro V1 because Justin Thomas is playing that. So I think that's it. when you look at Titleist total sales, the Pro V1 and Pro V1X are a huge, uh, the biggest portion of their sales. People aren't buying the cheaper ball from Titleist because they know it's good because Justin Thomas plays at Titleist. They're buying the ball that he's playing and spending a lot more money to buy it. So I, I don't know if I agree with you on because he's playing Titleist, that's what they'll go buy because they could do that and their sales would be higher on the cheaper product. But it, it does, they're buying it because that's what he's using. It's a tour ball and it's a successful. They advertise it. Now, if Justin Thomas plays a Titleist Pro V1 MLR ball and it's, and it's sitting on the shelf and he wins the tournament with it, do you think someone's going to go buy the Titleist MLR ball that they put this money into and in the value? Do you think that would be their number one selling ball anymore? Absolutely not. 
you know, it, it would be some other model that they would have. Maybe the current Pro V1 that, that, they, that they don't use on tour, I don't know. But they would have to have a separate model for this. This tour ball would have to be separate that wouldn't be sold, you know, that, that no one would want to buy. And I think there's a whole group of people out there that buy clubs that the tour supports because they see it as being as good. And, and they, they do it by models. Every manufacturer has a Bridgestone has the B series, you know, the tour series. Cali has the Chrome soft. All these manufacturers have these top of the line balls that are their number one selling ball. And, and it's not because it's the brand name and I know they make something good and I'll buy something cheaper. It's because that's what they see them play and that's what they want to play. And that's why there's a model name to it as well. So I've heard some concerns that this might be taking money out of tour players' pockets in the end because of this marketing issue that you're bringing up. Do you think that's a, a, a real you know, plausible situation here that, that tour player sponsorships could be worth less because of this. And that might be one reason that PGA tour stars might resist, uh, this new rule. Well, I, uh, yeah, there's gotta be one reason for it. But I, I also think that, you know, they, they also understand that they're, you know, that, that they work hard, they're athletes, they're fit. They, they spend a lot of time in the gym. You know, like I said, the ball speed that the tour players are hitting today has gone up 30 miles an hour because of the players it's not because of the ball so they've worked hard to get themselves into this position to have to have a little bit of advantage to hit it further and you know now you're going to push them back you're pushing everybody back so to me it it, it's it steps back you know the 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 players themselves are going to lose money there's no question about it no one's going to get paid millions of dollars to pay something that they can't sell and they may they may sell something to wear the hat be on tour and you know, and use the clubs and things like that. But the golf ball side to it is, uh, is used on every shot. And, and if you want to play what the tour players play, you're not going to, you're going to use what they sell on the side and not what the tour players play. Cause that's a different, totally different product that's made to be shorter and spin more. So I, I think there is a, there is a big loss in financial side to the tour. I don't know if the reason why they're against it is because of money, it has to be part of it, but I don't think it's the whole reason. I really think, they take pride in being athletes now and, and working hard to be able to have this, you know, this distance that they, that they've been, everybody's gained distance. It's not, it's not just the elite tour players have gotten longer. The shorter hitters have gotten longer too, but, uh, but moving people up and back is just, you know, water the fairway. Try, just try. I don't know what they did to the course this week in, in a tournament that we just watched, but I think nine or 10 under one, 21 under didn't win. You know, so if you, if you, a course setup for the week that they're there, challenge them a little bit on it and soften it up a little bit and make the rough just a little thicker where it takes, takes the bombing gouge kind of part out of it. You know, I think the scores can be brought back a little bit, but, uh, but I, 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 like I say, I don't disagree with the, with the fact that the players hit the ball longer than the courses were made for. I don't disagree with that. I just think for me personally, golf is, is fun right now and it's growing and different players can win that you really don't know who they are. And, and it's, uh, you know, people, people kind of want that one week might want to see birdies and then they come to the U S open and they watch them struggle for par and then they go back and play again. So I'd like to see them soften them up a little bit during the week. You know, they can firm the greens up, they can soften the fairways up, they can have the rough a little bit higher and, 
shape it a little bit. Just try that. You know, if the PG, but that's a PGA Tour issue, not a USGA issue from a rule point of view. So that's the course setup. And you see the USGA does that during the US Open. They do the course setup, and it's very easy to make a golf course play to par, which they can do. So I, I, I think he, there's opportunities there. This, the, this distance issue right now is not us on a Saturday morning at our golf course. We don't, our groups don't even play the back tees. You know, this tees further back. So nobody's really – the amateur golfer is not adding 40 yards to his drives, you know, like, like the tour players are. But the tour players are doing it because – the, the, the fairways, some of the fairways the tour plays at are like greens that we play on for average golfers, mm-hmm. you know, and they're firm, they roll a lot, and, you know, and they're, and they're able to hit the ball further, obviously, and faster. So there's a lot of factors in this, but I just think shortening it up 15, 20, 25 yards, whatever it ends up being is, is going to create a, a lot more issues than, than that one week that they play at the course that they're worried about. It's definitely going to be complex. And, you know, what, what I find so interesting about this debate is the different perspectives that we as golfers all bring to it. You know, you're, you're coming at this from the perspective of a, a ball expert and a ball manufactured and, and also a golfer. I don't want to discount that, that part of it. I come at it more from the perspective of somebody who loves golf courses above pretty much everything else. And, I like when golf courses play firm. I, I like when golf courses aren't overwatered. I like when golf courses don't have super high rough where there's a wide area in which players can kind of strategize and find out different ways to attack the hole. That that to me is is really interesting and, and a key part of the game. And that's the part of the game that that I see potentially being protected here. But the the way that this is being gone about, you know, the exact method of protection here, find uh, you know, figuring out an MLR ball is obviously going to have its own sort of consequences that are that are worth thinking about, even for somebody like me who is saying the courses are the most important thing. Let's think about that first before we do anything else. I would acknowledge that man, this is creating a real set of difficulties for ball manufacturers and ball engineers. Now, I know that you don't manufacture a, a tour-intended ball. I'm not sure that the, that the MLR is going to affect Snell Golf's business. But do you, do you see this new potential reality affecting the way that Snell Golf goes about things? I don't. I mean, we, we've had seven or eight tour players come to us and want to play the ball on tour, and we've respectfully declined. It's not our business model. We try to keep the cost down and, and make the tour performance be available to, to all of our customers by direct-to-consumer. So, you know, we, we've eliminated a lot, of the, a lot of the other things that have big expenses to them, and we pass that savings back to our customers. So it's no cheaper to make the golf ball we do today than it is to make a tailor-made or titleist. It's the same cost. But the added cost that they have to support that tour is what I'm talking about. If if our golf balls sell for twenty nine ninety nine a dozen and they sell for fifty five dollars a dozen and they cost the same to make, that's the cost that you, that they're putting into financing the tour, having people on tour, having reps, pro shops, markups, margins. So it's easy to figure out what that is to become a a global brand, top of the line, you know, company, which they are. So I mean, I, I look at it as as I'm I'm also a fan of golf. You know, as you mentioned about your the course side to it, 
um, that the, the the issue on the course that you're talking about is the is one week that the tour is there. Mm-hmm. It's not an issue on the course 51 weeks out of the year to golfers that pay to play golf. You know, so I I look at this issue as as let's let's keep the game fun. Let's get people to want to play. Let's make it easier for people to try to play on a game that's extremely difficult, not the PGA tour level, but to the, you know, an average handicap, I believe is somewhere around 17, you know, single digits are less than 5% of all golfers. So the, the, this is, this is what we have as a business that we want people to, to join this game that we all love and watch. And, and I've got a lot of friends that watch and they want to see birdies on the weekend. They don't want to see people struggle for par. So it, it just as a fan, not as a not as a guy in the business, but as a fan of golf, that's that's my preference of what I want to see. Um, and I just see this as a you know that week that that they're at your course. But again, I don't know what they did this week at Innisbrook. I don't know if it was windy. I didn't see a lot of the event, but ten under won the won the, the tournament, and and I, I'm not sure what happened with it, but it wasn't twenty one, twenty two under, and they weren't obsolete in the course but by any means. Harbor Town for years was one of the shortest courses on tour and their setup that they had when the tour came in, I believe like eight to 10 under was the lowest score average for a long time. And then it went to 12. I'm not sure what it is today, but there were, there were a lot of, a lot of places that, you know, that, that can create some excitement for golf. Look at the 10th hole at Riviera. Every player can probably drive that, that green. And they were struggling to make power a lot because of the way it's set up. So, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to add yardage to courses, but we can change maybe a setup a little bit during that week for them to play and still and still let the 99% of people that pay for everything or 100% of people that pay for everything kind of enjoy it. You know, that's, that's just my, my personal opinion. I, I, I agree with you on they hit it, they hit it far and the old-fashioned courses can't. You know, they, they, they're hitting it further than what they were designed to do. I got that, you know, but I just think that the solution that's proposed create, I mean, you could, you could put a rule in golf saying you can't use a tee. You, you just, you, now you've just taken them back 30 yards, you know, and, and, and if you, if you do the USGA proposal and say, let's bring them back to their number 15 yards, does that solve the problem? When they're hitting the ball 375 yards, 360 yards off the tee, is 350 a solution? Well, it, you know, I, I, I've often wondered during this whether this is going to be enough and how quickly very smart engineers are going to figure out how to get us back to the same place that we were. And, and this is something that the USGA has acknowledged as a possibility. Um, and, and so that's, yeah, I've, I've definitely wondered about that myself, whether, you know, if it's 15 yards, if that's the number that it's reduced by, is that the magic number somehow? And, uh, yeah. I don't think that there is, is necessarily a magic number. It's, it's an enormously intricate problem. And I'm not sure that, uh, that we're going to solve it in one fell swoop, but, um, <laughs> I think, I think we can yeah. agree on that. You and I, Dean, I want to make one more point. What's interesting about what you were just talking about <clears throat> When I mentioned a minute ago that the tour average was 160 miles per hour with ball speed, and now today you see players hitting it 170, 180, even Bryson close to 190, and you still see players hitting it 168 or 170. So there is your problem. If you're looking for a solution to something, it, there's no solution. If the player can take a golf ball that's the same ball, maxed out speed, 
and can hit it 30 or 40 miles an hour faster because the player can do that with the same equipment, you're not going to solve a distance problem by saying what's the right number to bring them back because in golf at those speeds, every mile an hour in ball speed is about two, two and a half yards of distance. So if someone is 30 to 40 miles an hour faster in ball speed, just ball speed, which is which they're all playing the same ball, they all, all playing the same ball speed maxed out. If, if you're 30 miles an hour, you're 60 to 75 yards ahead of that person. So shortening the ball up 25 yards or 15 yards, you're still going to be 60 to 75 yards ahead of that person. You know, so it, that you can't you can't tell the player he can't hit the ball that much faster than the other player. So distance is going to always be a challenge, and there isn't a there is a there is a the, the number they're picking is a is a ball speed, launch angle, and spin one number, but they forget the fact that Bryson hits it at 190. And some of the shorter hitters hit it at 165 or 170. That that's 40 yards of, of distance right there. It shortened the ball up 20. You know, it's it's basically you're making this this guy still be 40 yards behind him, but 20 yards further back. You know, so that that's the challenge that's there. Which I don't I don't have a solution to that because the players have been able to to be able to work their bodies and, and generate that kind of swing speed, which generates that kind of ball speed. Look, if it were up to me, we'd all be going back to persimmon and balls with liquid in the middle. So, uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> I think that that would, if, uh, if, if Bryson is looking at a, at a persimmon driver from 1980, I, I bet he's not, uh, swinging quite as hard at it and <laughs> looking, yep. looking to find middle a little bit more. And if the ball's spinning a lot, then, then I'm, I'm sure everything would change. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that we, we all know sort of what happened in, in the eighties and nineties, uh, when it came to the new technology and golf equipment it was an amazing achievement on the part of engineers to come up with these ideas but it definitely permanently altered the game of golf and and we're dealing with that now um so dean thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your perspective i really appreciate it all righty my pleasure thank you one more quick break and joseph lamania and i will be back with our storylines to track this week in golf All right, Joseph, storylines. So anything that you're looking at this week in golf that you think could potentially develop and be interesting? Absolutely. I think uh, there are, again, some people like the new PGA Tour schedule that's been announced for next year. Some people hate it. One of the components is that the designated events are going to be limited fields, 70 to 80 players, and 50 of those spots are going to be filled by the previous year's FedEx Cup standing. So if you were top 50, you're into all the designated events. One of the massive benefits of configuring things this way is that the race to get into the top 50 means a lot more now. And so that is something that I've already been tracking. Other people have made the same point. It's kind of cool to start looking at the FedEx Cup standings and appreciate what it means. So I, I would give an example this week of a player like Kevin Kisner, who's had a really poor start to this PGA Tour season. He's ranked, I'm looking it up right now, 181st in the FedEx Cup standings. If he wants to get into the top 50 at the end of the year, he has to take advantage of courses like this that fit him well and that he's had success on in the past. So that's a cool story to watch. It's like some of these golfers like Matt Kuchar, Billy Horschel, Kevin Kisner, 
when they get to a course that fits their game, do they take advantage of it? Because if they don't, they may be on the outside looking in at the end of the year. And I think it's a really cool storyline to track this year and a testament to what the PGA Tour has done with the new schedule. And do they take advantage of the match play format and some of that that opportunity that it presents to players who might not be able to beat the top guys over 72 holes, right? Match play, I'm starting to think of a match play tournament as a kind of shuffling of the deck on the PGA Tour, a really useful shuffling of the deck where some people might rise, some people might fall, but it's it's a way to kind of break the flow of 72-hole stroke play and its relative reliability and just get in there and kind of mess things up. And that's good. A little bit of chaos, a little injection of chaos, just like in golf course design, in my opinion, can be really good. Totally agree, right? And I think a cool thing about match play is if you're struggling, you're going home. But if you're struggling in the third round of a 72-hole tournament stroke play and you have a couple bad holes to, to finish your round, you can get a good night's sleep and go out, play a soft course in the morning and hope you go low. That doesn't exist in match play. So I think that's really cool. Also, to the high variance point, it is high variance. But part of that is the golf course is a little bit different. Yep. Scotty Scheffler's finished. He's won and he's been runner-up here in his two starts. It's not a complete crapshoot. So... I think it has a great balance between chaos and rewarding, mentally tough play when, when players step up and hit good shots. All right. So my storyline this week is pretty simple. Will more equipment companies come out against the model local rule? Now, Titleist got a lot of attention this past week, or Kushnet, its parent company, got a lot of attention for putting out a long, very critical statement about the model local rule. They're against it. We knew that. They've been against it. They've been preemptively arguing against this rule for years and years now, for decades. And so that was no surprise. But Titleist is the market leader in ball manufacturing right now. They have a position to defend. They don't like the idea of things being disrupted this much. Now, other manufacturers were a lot more quiet. Bridgestone did put out a statement of its own, but it was significantly more lukewarm. They said, we're concerned about the idea of bifurcation. We don't want anything to get in the way of golf's success right now. But they also said, we're going to continue making as good of a ball as we can. And so basically they're saying, if this happens, fine, we'll adjust to it. The other manufacturers were totally silent. Callaway gave a complete no comment. They said, we are studying the information and the proposals provided. We have no further comment at this time. TaylorMade did not say anything. Srixon did not say anything. Wilson did not say anything. Go Wilson. So this is interesting to me because, you know, according to the common sense position on all this, every ball manufacturer is super against the model local rule ball and the governing bodies are going to have a revolt on their hands. But so far, it doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like there are some sort of second tier in terms of the market manufacturers looking at this and saying, you know, we're not going to say anything about this right now because this could be an opportunity for us. So I wonder if that's what they're thinking. Now, if they come out this week and say we're against the model local rule just as much as Titleist is, then then that's one thing. Maybe they just needed some time to study this. But you know what? They've all had a lot of time to consider a possibility like this. They all sort of knew this was coming. And so I think that their silence so far is really notable. And what I'm going to be looking out for is if they do 
say something this week. And if they don't, then then I think that there are some sort of second, third, fourth place manufacturers looking at Titleist and saying, we, we might be able to take that throne. Yeah, look, I, I think if the government came out and said that chocolate is bad for you and we're going to reduce chocolate consumption in the country, Hershey's would come out with a statement that they're displeased, right? <laughs> yes, right. And that's what a Kushnet coming out with this statement that they're not happy with the rollback. To me, it's the same thing. Like, yeah, we get it. You're, you're financially incentivized to keep the train rolling. But coming out with a statement that you're upset is very different than saying you're not going to adapt to it. And until somebody comes out and says, we're not even going to build that ball, then it's all just noise to me. So I agree with you. I'm really excited to see how this shakes out. And there's going to be an opportunity for a hungry ball manufacturer to, to come up and fill that need. All right, Joseph, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Garrett. Appreciate it. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was produced and edited by Matt Rucius. Thank you, Matt. If you'd like to support the Fried Egg, there's one thing that I would encourage you to do. Go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and see what Club TFE is all about. Club TFE is our membership. It's $120 a year, and we offer all kinds of content with it. We offer a daily Club TFE blog. We offer weekly course profiles, monthly videos made by Cameron Hurtis, as well as good deals in the pro shop and early access to fried egg events. So if you're interested, go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and see what Club TFE has to offer. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.